I got thinking this week about something that happened back in the 1980s, my first decade of being a youth pastor. One of the teens in my youth group arranged to have me go to their high school for career day to talk about what it was like to be a youth pastor. So I showed up at the high school and they took me to the library where there were four or five classes that had been combined. So there's, I don't know, 100, 120 teenagers there about to hear me talk about being a youth pastor. And back in the corner were five or six teachers who had brought the students down, probably grateful that they had a free period now. They could just uh, sit and listen or whatever. And so I began my spiel of telling them about the, the fun and the adventure of being a youth pastor in the Church of the Nazarene, what I did from day to day, and the kind of activities that we had as teens, and rattled on for a while. And, and then I was finished. The bell hadn't rung at the end of the period, so there were a few minutes left over. So I decided I'd go hang out with those teachers for a while and just you know see what kind of small talk we could have. And I was back there talking, and eventually one of them came to me and said... Uh, is the Church of the Nazarene a cult? And I'm thinking maybe I didn't do a thorough enough job of describing, <laughs> talk about all the fun and games and adventure, but I must not have gone into doctrine too, too extensively. That was perhaps the first time when I began to think in terms of how to identify myself or how do we identify ourselves as members of the Church of the Nazarene, what labels might we put on in a conversation with a teacher or a cashier or anybody for that matter? What kind of labels, what kind of words might we use to describe what the Church of the Nazarene is all about? At first, obviously, to me, I, I said, well, we're Christians. And uh, we're Protestants. Instead of being Roman Catholics or Orthodox, we're, we're Protestants. Um, I might choose to use the word evangelical, although there's some connotations to that that don't really apply to us. And I could use the word Wesleyan, but who in their right mind would know who Wesley was if they weren't already in the Church of the Nazarene? So eventually I've come to the conclusion that maybe the best word to use to describe us is holiness. Holiness people. Now, holiness is a word, of course, that means different things to different people. And yet it's the defining doctrine of the Church of the Nazarene. We probably ought to know what it means. It's probably one of those words, like so many others, that has changed its meaning over the course of the decades. As a matter of fact... Um, about 10 years after that experience, probably, the Church of the Nazarene decided that maybe they needed to, to de decide which labels to slap on the denomination. And so they, they came up with uh, what are known as the, the core values of the Church of the Nazarene. You know, in, the, in America, there's this homogenization that has gone on as people start looking for churches that have a program for their kids or good worship music or a good youth program or, or whatever. It, they're not so much interested in what we believe as much as what we have to offer. But the Church of the Nazarene decided, I think it was in the 90s, that maybe we ought to 
be able to tell people concisely who we are, what we're all about. And so they came up with three core values. We are a Christian people. We are a holiness people. And we are a missional people. Christian, holiness, missional been thinking about those words this week. There's a prevailing pessimism in the world today, even in the church world, a, a pessimism, an, un, an unwillingness to believe that this fallen, sinful, frustrating, discouraging world can get any better. I mean, things are pretty bad, aren't they? And it's not just pandemics and earthquakes and hurricanes and racial violence and those sorts of things. It's just, it's just, it seems like a lot of people have come to the conclusion that this is a bad place and it's probably not getting any better. And of course, the best thing to do under circumstances like that is to get out of it, right? Come Lord Jesus. <laughs> But the Church of the Nazarene has positioned us to be a uniquely optimistic people in the midst of a fallen, frustrating, discouraging, sinful world. We have the optimism of God's grace. We have the optimism of God's amazing, transforming grace. By that I mean, and, and we mean in the Church of the Nazarene, that God not only can forgive our sins, amen, but that he can also set us free from our human sinfulness so that we can realize the full potential that God has created human beings to be. God can set me free from my past, but he can also transform us, transform me, to be what God intended me to be in this world, a world that ought to be full of optimism instead of pessimism. Holiness has two key facets. One is purity, and the other is mission. And holiness means keeping these two, purity and mission, in proper balance. It's, it's hard to keep that balance sometimes. Holiness tends to err on, in one direction or the other. So purity without mission becomes self-righteousness. And our denomination has spent a fair bit of time patting ourselves on the back about how holy we are, how pure we are, how free from sin we are, but not caring much for perhaps inviting other people into this condition. Holiness, when it's purity without mission, becomes self-righteousness. Holiness, when it's mission without purity, becomes just a host of good works. We do nice things for disadvantaged people, but we don't spend much time inviting those people to move beyond the surface stuff to the salvation and transformation stuff. 
mission without purity becomes mere good deeds. So there's this need for us to hold intention, to hold in balance these two facets of what it means to be a holy people, the purity on the one hand and the mission on the other. Over the course of the next few weeks, I want us to take a closer look at what it means to be a Christian people, a holy people, and a missional people. And I've chosen to begin this morning by uh, looking at the connection that holiness has with being made in the image of God. Holiness begins by being made in the image of God. So if you'll crack your Bible open to the very first chapter, Genesis chapter 1, I want to read a few verses beginning with verse 24. It's in the book of Genesis that this idea of the image of God is first introduced to us. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God said that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Wheaton University president or professor John Walton describes this chapter, Genesis chapter 1, as the creation of a cosmic temple. It's not just the moon and stars and the sun and dirt and rocks and animals. It's the creation of a cosmic temple in which God is going to reign. It's the temple in which God is going to do his redemptive work. It's not just a place on the map. It's a place where God dwells and does his redemptive work. And temples, of course, have uh, an image of the God whose temple it is. If you look at pagan temples, there's a carving, a statue of some sort that represents qualities of the God, small letter G, that they're worshiping there. And so if John Walton is correct, if this universe, this planet in particular, is God's cosmic temple, and the image that God chooses to put in that temple to reflect who that God is happens to be a 
human race. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know what God is all about? Look at the human race. That's what God wanted the human race to be. That's the extraordinarily high calling that God has for the human race, to be his image in this cosmic temple. Verse 26 tells us why. He said, God made us in his image so that we could rule, we could fill, we could subdue. God not only wants us to reflect his glory, to reflect his being, to reflect his purpose, but he wants us to be partners with him in ruling this world in stewarding this world, in helping this world to become what God intends for it to be. I don't know about you, but that excites me. God has chosen me and and you to be partners with him to make this world what he intends it to be. He paints this incredible picture there in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, this incredible picture of what the world is supposed to be. And he says, you are the ones who reflect my glory. You are the ones that let the rest of the world know what this ought to look like. And I want you to partner with me to make this happen. Let's get to work, he says to Adam and Eve. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a a more specific commission to be the image of God. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, we'll read a a section of this great Sermon on the Mount. This is, in a very real way, the Genesis chapter 1 of the New Testament. It's Jesus spelling out what the kingdom of God is all about what our role and purpose in all of this is and how we ought to live and believe and talk and act. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But. (laughs) But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is Jesus' call to holiness. There's a, a reference back, an allusion back to that being made in the image of God from Genesis chapter 1. He calls us being, he calls us children of God. What do you know about children? If there are biological children, they share the same DNA. For better or worse. (laughs) 
there's a good chance that they're going to grow up to look like us and act like us, for better or worse. (laughs) We are the children of God, the family of God, bearing a family resemblance to God, sharing his DNA, being intimately connected with God, patterning ourselves after our parent, our heavenly father. Through Jesus, we are being remade in the image of God. That's the work that Jesus came to do. And then Jesus finishes this section by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect. That word teleos in Greek means complete, fulfilled, reaching the target that it's being shot at, doing what it's designed to do. So when he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect within the context of this couple paragraphs, he's saying, be perfectly able to love even your enemies. Who is God? God is love. And if we're made in his image, Jesus is calling us to be perfectly able to love other people just as God loves them. Now, Jesus in this phrase, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, is paraphrasing a couple well-known passages from the book of Leviticus. He changes the word, though, from Holy to perfect. In Leviticus chapter 11, we hear God saying, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. The emphasis here this morning is on that phrase, I brought you out of Egypt. God set his people free. God brought them from 400 plus years of slavery to the Egyptians into the wilderness where they could learn how to be like God. They could recapture the image at a deeper knowledge than they had ever known before. They could find out who God is and what he wanted them to do, how he wanted them to live, and then move into the promised land where they could live that out, into that promised land which was a temple where they would be able to be the image of God to the world. God makes us free from our slavery and sin so that we might be his image, not some poor reflection, right? God makes us free from our slavery to sin so that we might be his image. Jesus is also referring to another passage from Leviticus. In chapter 19, verse 2, he says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
He's not just speaking to the Levites and to the priests when God says be holy. He's speaking to the entire assembly, all 12 tribes, from the biggest to the smallest, from the best to the worst. Be holy, he says, as I am holy. Jesus changes the word from holy to perfect, meaning complete or full. Jesus is inviting us to be what he is. He was a human being who can live up to what God intends human beings to be, right? Jesus lived a life without sin. And then he said, there, I did it. Now you do it. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be complete as your heavenly Father is complete. Be able to love even your enemies just as your heavenly Father loves every single one of us who was his enemy. Jesus is inviting us to be what he is, to become what God intended us to be. Jesus is the pattern for us. Jesus is the template for us. Jesus is the firstborn that we might follow him. Jesus is the model. Jesus is the example for what God intends human beings to be. Or as Paul describes it in a couple verses from Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation." What does God look like? Say it with me. Jesus. What does God look like? Jesus. He's the image of God. Image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Which means that all of those who follow him are going to be able to do what he does, right? He says, you will be able to do even greater things than I did. If we follow the pattern, if we follow the image. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God's purpose in salvation is to restore the image of Christ, the image of God in human beings. How do you feel about that? One word. How do you feel about that? Good? Challenged? Come on, folks. You need to have an opinion about this. Ready? Is that what you said? Ready? Jesus, the firstborn, the image of the invisible God, came so that we might look like him, we might act like him, we might think like him, we might love like him. Purpose. Purpose. Encouraged. Challenged. Maybe a little daunted, but I hope you're also excited. I hope you're also saying, really? I'm worth that? I have that kind of potential? God did that so that I might become what he really intended me to be all along? You know what I'm going to say, don't you? 
Woohoo! <laughs> if God is holy, do you believe God is holy? Just raise a hand if you believe. Say amen, you know. God is holy. No no qualms with that. If God is holy and we are meant to bear his image, Proposition one, if God is holy. Proposition two, and if we are meant to bear his image, then we have the capacity to be holy people. If God is holy and we were created to bear his image, then we can be holy. Holiness has two facets, as I said. There's the purity and there's the mission. Let me deal with the first one first. In the New Testament, the word that's more often than not used for holiness is the word hagios, which means different. It means to be set aside for a special use. Do you have a set of china at home that's hagios? You probably pull it out when the important people come for dinner. Maybe you use it at Christmas time or the Thanksgiving feast. You don't use it on the kitchen table in the middle of the summer. That's what plastic tableware is for, right? That's what the cheap stuff is. That's the stuff you bought at Salvation Army. But, you know, when it's really a special occasion, you bring out the Hagios China. It's been set aside for really high celebratory kind of meals. Do you have a Hagios set of clothing? It used to be people got dressed up in their best on Sundays. I don't know if we want to go back to that. There's some real value in putting on our best for God, but it can also be a problem for those that may not be able to afford it. But there's probably a set of clothes in your closet that you wear to funerals and weddings, right? A hagio suit, a hagios dress set aside for those special occasions, not to be confused with the blue jeans that have all the cuts and stuff in them, right? Not to be confused for that pair of pants that you wear when you're going to go kneel in the garden and pull weeds, right? That's common stuff, but you've got a hagio suit, a hagio dress that's set aside for a purpose. So God is hagios because he is different from all that he created, the temple is Hagios because it is different from all other buildings in Israel. The Sabbath is Hagios because it's different from other days. Mount Sinai is Hagios because it's different from all other mountains. The incense used in the temple is Hagios because it's different from all other recipes for incense. The Christian is hagios because we are different from what we used to be. And set aside for a specific person of purpose of being God's image, pure image in the world around us. 
So the, the overarching emphasis in these verses and these words is on being different and being complete in the sense of resembling God. You're called to be different from the rest of the world, and you're called specifically to be the image of God. And we just spent nine weeks looking at what it means to be the image of God, and it's captured in the words love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If God is all of that and more, and if we are made in his image, then we can be all of that and more. So the first thing, holiness means purity. It means being set apart. It means reflecting God's character into the world. It means no longer being common or corrupt or secular, but instead it means being pure and sacred and holy. The, the second thing, the second word, the second part of being set apart is for the mission of God's kingdom becoming embodied in the world. What is God's kingdom? It's bringing about in our personal life, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our school, the kingdom of God. Jesus taught us to pray every day, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in my classroom, in my workplace, in my home, as it is in heaven. He gave us a, a commission to rule and subdue and fill the earth, which is a fancy way of saying, make this my kingdom in reality. Make this a place full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Make this the kind of a place that, that looks like me, is what God is saying. Shaped and patterned after God and put into practice by our lives, filled by his Holy Spirit. So in summary, we're a Christian people. And you know what the word Christian means, right? Little Christs. We're to be a Christian people. We're made to look like Jesus. We're made in the image of God. And we are a holiness people because we are purified by God's sanctifying grace for the purpose of being God's missional people in the world. And I hope that right now you're asking, well, how does this happen, Pastor? I mean, practically speaking, how do I become the image of God? There are parts of me that are, I'm, I'm not happy about, that I'm not proud of. There are things that I've said this past week that I regret saying, and I'm going to have to go back and ask to be forgiven for. And, and my attitude is not always the attitude of Christ, like it says in Philippians chapter 2. And, and so, so, Pastor, if God is holy, and we are made in God's image, 
so that we can become holy, how, practically speaking, is this going to happen? Because this excites me. It's daunting, but this excites me. How how, how does this happen, Pastor? The third of those Leviticus references that Jesus paraphrased by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8 say, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Read that with me. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Two things to draw our attention to there this morning. First is that it's God's job to make us holy. He says, I am, what a name, right? I am the Lord who makes you holy. Say with me, woo! There's a load off my plate. I know just how daunting a project I am. If God's going to make me holy, He's going to have to do the heavy lifting. Because there's some serious issues that need to be reversed, right? Say it with me, folks. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) It's God's part to make us holy. Our part is to what? First two words. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate means what? To commit. To submit. To invest yourself in the process. To say, let's begin. I'm all in. I'm not going to make any promises. This is going to be hard work, God. You got your work cut out for you when you're talking about me, but... But here I am. I'm throwing myself on the altar. I'm making myself available for you to do your sanctifying work. Our part is to give ourselves to God. God's part is to make us holy. Does that sound like a good division, a proper division of duty? Do you think God can do the work of making us holy? I'd really like an answer. Yes or no. Do you think God can do the work of making us holy? Yes. Do you think that this week, day by day, moment by moment, we can consecrate ourselves? We can say, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, change me. Can you do that? We're not going to be too proud and say, I don't need any work. I'm, I am a statue of purity right here, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we just... Humble ourselves and throw ourselves on God's mercy and say, Lord, here's something that doesn't look like you. Please change this. Let's pray. Let's begin that consecration process right now together. Would you do an honest inventory? Would you invite the Holy Spirit to search me and know me? And know my wicked ways. 
Would you just listen for a moment as God points out things about your life, your attitudes, your love, your affection, your priorities that's not godly? If you're like me, it probably doesn't take too long to start hearing him speak. Lord, we believe that you are a holy God. We believe that that holiness needs to be seen in this dark, fallen world. Lord, it is only your holiness that's going to make a difference in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, our politics, our finances. Lord, you are holy and you want this world to be holy. You want this world to be perfect. Thank you for teaching us how to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And Father, this morning we confess that we're part of the problem. And we don't want to be a part of the problem. We want to be a part of the solution. Lord, we want in on your kingdom building project. And so we consecrate these things about ourselves to you this morning. Lord, we confess them. We acknowledge that they're ours and ours alone. Father, we pray that you would change them, that you would forgive them, that you would heal them, that you would restore what is right and good and holy. Lord, we promise that this week, by your grace, we will do the work of consecrating ourselves every moment of every day. And Lord, we invite you to do what only you can do. Only you can forgive sin. Only you can change sinful human nature. Only you can fan the flames of the image of Jesus in us so that it becomes more and more recognizable, more and more noticeable, more and more active in our daily lives. Lord, we are not pessimists. We are not wringing our hands. We are not pulling out our hair as we listen to the news from day to day. Instead, Father, we are optimists. We are children of God. We are part of the family of God. We are part of the solution. Starting small, starting where we live and move and have our being. Father, we are part of your kingdom-building endeavors, and we give ourselves to you, and we look forward to seeing what you will do in and through us this week. Lord, make us Christian. Make us holy. Make us missionaries this week. In Christ's name we pray and all of God's children say,